This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. intro music to a given segment of this program is Cream's Politician, you know things are in a bad way. I'm a political man and I practice what I preach. Do you think somebody's referring to Bob Mueller along the way? I don't think you get to be head of the FBI without playing a little politics. A lot of people have had their hopes up that the Mueller report would delve into some of the wrongdoing and (sighs) evidently collusion and conspiracy of the administration with certain folks in Russia. But those on the left appear to be very disappointed while Team Trump seems to be ecstatic. And you know what? They've decided that Bob Mueller guy, he's okay. Now, as you may or may not be aware, dear listener, Mueller's long report, we're not even sure how long, probably hundreds of pages long, the star report that looked into a a presidential act of fellatio, ran, I think, what, 450 pages? So one would guess that an investigation (laughs) that has resulted in, I don't even keep track now of how many indictments, how many convictions, how many investigations going on into um, collaboration, shall we say, between Team Trump and Team Putin. We're not sure how long that report is because all we have is a evidently a four-page summary from Attorney General William Barr. I think we could not do any better at this point than to go to the Borowitz report from Andy Borowitz, who notes in the New Yorker, Dateline, Washington, Attorney General William Barr has just read the classic American novel Moby Dick by Herman Melville and found the book contains no evidence whatsoever of whales. The Attorney General issued his statement on the absence of whales in the Melville Classic in a two-paragraph book report released to the news media. Quote, Those who read Moby Dick looking for whales will be sorely disappointed, Barr wrote. There are no whales here. To illustrate his point, Barr quoted the book's first sentence, Call me Ishmael. As you can clearly see, that sentence does not have a whale in it, wrote Barr. The Attorney General indicated that he hoped his report would put an end to reckless speculation about the existence of whales in Moby Dick, writing, it's time to move on. Barr disclosed that after waiting years to read Moby Dick, he was able to finish reading it in approximately 15 minutes. I think at this point we're going to have to refer back to a couple of quotes in recent weeks that uh, just seem appropriate somehow to our current situation. The first is from Ezra Pound, who once said, the technique of infamy is to invent two lies and to get people to argue heatedly over which one of them is true. We suspect that at the root of the Mueller investigation, there's not just a lot of smoke, but also some fire. The other quote, which might even be even more appropriate, is from Thomas Pynchon, saying, If they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't need to worry about the answers. And since we're starting out in a vaguely humorous manner, I do have to laugh at what somebody sent me, which, oddly enough, was the definition of the word trumpery. Trumpery really is a word in the dictionary. 
And in case you're unaware, this is what it means. Trumpery, definition one, deceit, fraud. Definition two, anything calculated to deceive by false show. Anything externally splendid, but intrinsically of little value. Worthless finery. Definition three of trumpery, things worn out and of no value. Useless matter, trifles, rubbish, nonsense. That seem about right to anybody? And finally this, which turned up on the web. How do you get Trump to change a light bulb? Answer is, you don't. He will lie that he changed it, and all the Republicans will sit in the dark and agree that it was changed. Now, searching for some good news nuggets in all of this uh, effluvium, we have the news that California's state auditor, Elaine Howe, is looking for people to volunteer to prepare to draw district lines for election 2022. The gerrymandering that exists in this country from coast to coast is uh, a major reason that the will of the electorate has been thwarted again and again. So Elaine Howe's office must do the spade work necessary to create a new California Citizens Redistricting Commission to draw district lines for legislative, congressional, and board of equalization seats. And reportedly, she wants our help. The state auditor is responsible for ensuring the commission is as independent and reflective of California as possible, and you can start submitting applications to serve on June 10th. To qualify, you must have been a registered voter for the past five years and registered in your party of choice or have been a no-party preference voter for five years. You must have voted in at least two of the last three state elections, and you can't have been a campaign donor in recent years. Back in 2008 and again in 2010, California voters approved initiatives stripping politicians of the power to draw their own district boundaries and place it in the hands of the Independent Commission. Republican donor Charles Munger Jr. took the lead in funding the initiatives, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, also a Republican, promoted them. Schwarzenegger continues to campaign against gerrymandering nationally, touting California's model. You know, we have to give the governor a bit of credit on that. I'd like to put the idea out there that maybe we can do something about this. We're trying not to feel helpless and hopeless at the moment. But let's talk a little bit about what's going on and the coverage of it in the news media. I was very disappointed to see on NPR recently an article about the man who will determine the fate of the Mueller report, what you should know. The piece was, of course, about Attorney General William Barr. This is what we were informed we should know about him. He's a Justice Department veteran, being this is his second stint as Attorney General. Second, he's pledged transparency and consistency with the law. Radio Parallax has come to believe he also supports motherhood and apple pie. According to this piece on NPR.org, Barr has a sweeping view of executive power, for he has supported presidential pardon power, and five, he's a hardliner on issues of crime and immigration. I was skimming that piece and finding not a lot in it that had much value. Therefore, I was very grateful to see the piece in Salon.com that more or less cut to the chase on the issue of William Barr. Under the headline, Cover Up Attorney General Bill Barr Strikes Again, that piece opened as follows. Back in 1992, the last time Bill Barr was U.S. Attorney General, Iconic New York Times writer William Sapphire referred to him as cover-up General Barr because of his role in burying evidence of then-President George H.W. Bush's involvement in Iraqgate and Iran-Contra. 
Bill Barr has struck again, this time in similar fashion, burying Mueller's report and cherry-picking fragments of sentences from it to justify Trump's behavior. In his letter, he notes that Robert Mueller, quote, leaves it to the attorney general to decide whether the conduct described in the report constitutes a crime, unquote. As Attorney General Barr, without showing us even a single complete sentence from the Mueller report, decided there are no crimes here, just keep moving along. Barr's history of doing just this sort of thing to help Republican presidents in legal crisis explains why Trump brought him back to head the Justice Department. Christmas Day of 1992, the New York Times featured a screaming all-caps headline across the top of its front page. Attorney General Bill Barr has covered up evidence of crimes by Reagan and Bush in the Iran-Contra scandal. Earlier that week of Christmas 1992, George Herbert Walker Bush was on his way out of office. Bill Clinton had won the White House the month before and in a few weeks would be sworn in as president. Bush's biggest concern wasn't that he'd have to leave the White House to retire back to Connecticut or Maine or Texas where he has homes, but rather that he might wind up embroiled even deeper in the Iran-Contra scandal and that his colleagues may face time in federal prison after he left office. Independent counsel Lawrence Walsh was closing in on him fast, and Bush's private records subpoenaed by the independent counsel's office were the key to it all. Walsh had zeroed in on documents that were in possession of Reagan's former defense secretary, Casper Weinberger, who all evidence showed was definitely in on the deal, and President Bush's diary that could corroborate it. Elliot Abrams had already been convicted of withholding evidence from Congress, and he may have more information, too, if it could be pried out of him before he went to prison. But Abrams was keeping mum, apparently anticipating a pardon. Weinberger, trying to avoid jail himself, was prepared to testify that Bush knew about it and even participated. And Walsh had already, based on information he obtained from the investigation into Weinberg, demanded that Bush turn over his diary from the campaign. He was also hot on the trail of Abrams. So Bush called in his attorney general, Bill Barr, and asked for advice. Notes Salon.com, Barr, along with Bush, was already up to his eyeballs in cover-up of shady behavior in the Reagan administration. Bill Sapphire at the Times, who referred to him not as Attorney General but Cover-Up General, noted that in another scandal having to do with Bush selling weapons of mass destruction to Saddam Hussein, Barr was already covering up for Bush, Weinberger, and others from the Reagan administration. In October 19, 1992, Sapphire wrote of Barr's unwillingness to appoint an independent counsel to look into Iraqgate. Quote, Why does the cover-up general resist independent investigation? Because he knows where it may lead. To Dick Thornburg, James Baker, Clayton Uter, Brent Scowcroft, and himself, Salon notes in parentheses, the people who organized the sale of WMDs to Saddam. He vainly hopes to be able to head it off or at least to be able to use the threat of firing to negotiate a deal. It should be noted that Bill Sapphire was not exactly a flaming leftist. I highly recommend, dear listener, that you search out this piece and read it in its entirety. Salon notes that Barr successfully covered up the involvement of two Republican presidents, Reagan and Bush, in two separate and perhaps impeachable high crimes. A month later, newly sworn in President Bill Clinton and the new Congress decided to put it all behind them and not pursue the matters any further. Now, by cherry-picking Mueller's report and handing Trump the talking points he needed, Barr has done it again. The question this time is whether Congress will be as compliant as they were in 1993 and simply let it all go. Oh, and by the way, in case you forgot, back in December of 1992, George Herbert Walker Bush indeed pardoned six key figures that would have embroiled him in 
the entire affair. Of course, a lot of people are currently comparing the goings-on in Washington to what took place back in the early 70s during the Watergate investigations. I think it's forgotten by many that there was an FBI report submitted at that time that showed that the whole thing could be laid at the foot of G. Gordon Liddy, the Mr. Big of Watergate. And if you know your history, you'll know that, well, it turned out that it wasn't all related to G. Gordon Liddy. There was a few more things involved in Watergate, although we do accept at Radio Parallax that Richard M. Nixon did not, in fact, order the burglary. But that's, that's a discussion for another day. Anyway, I don't want to beat all this to death. But I do want to note, in the spirit of the times, that the White House plans to assemble a hand-picked group of researchers who would challenge the science of climate change. This was reported in multiple outlets earlier this month. The National Security Council initiative would feature scientists who contested the severity of global warming and the damage done by fossil fuels. The ad hoc group would likely bypass the rules on disclosure and public comment that bind other federal committees. In response, Senate Democrats began drafting legislation to block the panel. Republicans have accused Democrats of using climate change to justify a broad liberal agenda. For their part, Democrats characterize climate denial as a disease that has infected the GOP. This panel was reportedly conceived in response to President Trump's anger over last November's interagency national climate assessment, which described climate change as a security threat to the United States. And a completely non-related story, which has nevertheless got us raising eyebrows here at Radio Parallax, we have this. Earlier this month, U.S. District Judge Gray Miller ruled that an all-male military draft is unconstitutional. He cited a 1981 Supreme Court decision which found that male-only conscription was fully justified because women were prohibited from combat roles. After the Defense Department lifted all restrictions on women's service members in 2015, Miller said the president became dated. It should be noted that Americans haven't been drafted for more than 40 years, but men are required to register for the draft upon turning 18, and failure to do so can still lead to fines, prison, and denial of government services. Miller did not demand that the government take any immediate steps to comply with his ruling. You know, and I have heard a lot of people, progressives, express the idea that it would be really good if we brought back the draft. The logic being that if the children of uh, congressmen and senators, etc., were subject to the military draft, why huh, our elective our elected representatives might think twice about involving us in some, you know, shady foreign affairs. My reply to that is, it never stopped them before, and their kids generally weren't serving except in a very safe capacity. So that's really, really crazy logic, in my opinion. An opinion which does not necessarily represent that of the radio station which you are hearing this on. Or if you're checking us out on the web, does not represent necessarily the opinion of anybody who founded the internet. And speaking of the founding of the internet, let's let's take a dive back into that. Some rather shocking headlines from the technology section of The Week magazine, prompting us to quote the following. 30 years after inventing the World Wide Web, Sir Tim Berners-Lee wants to reinvent it, said John Thornhill in the Financial Times. On the anniversary of his world-changing creation last week, Berners-Lee, the scientist who, in 1989, created the technical standards that make the web possible, has grown increasingly distressed over the exploitation of the Internet for, quote, surveillance capitalism, 
electoral manipulation, and cybercrime, end quote. Since 2015, he's been working to design a new data platform called Solid. Its goal is to re-decentralize the web, returning ownership of data to the users who generate it. If he succeeds, his latest accomplishment may yet be considered almost as significant as the first, but the odds are stacked against him. Writing in The Atlantic, Alexis Madrigal notes that you can't celebrate the web's birthday without acknowledging its shortcomings. There were critics of the internet even in 1995. They shared prescient concerns about the rise of Facebook, Amazon, and Google and sounded alarms about the weakening of nation-states and strengthening of transnational corporations. Some, like author Ellen Ullman, even predicted that the on-demand economy would produce antisocial behavior since we would no longer have to involve anyone else in the satisfaction of our needs. These points are worth remembering, and they inoculate against nostalgia. If we want a better internet, we can't just look back at what we loved about the early days. And even the American conservative notes that it's not just Berners-Lee who doesn't like what he invented. Vint Cerf, the researcher who conceived the technical ideas behind the internet in the 1970s, thought its beauty was that, quote, it's not connected by any one group, unquote. Now, says Cerf, the internet has become the opposite of what it was intended to be. It's a dystopia governed by a few big companies. They note that since 2014, more than half of all traffic to websites has come from just two sources, Google and Facebook. That's when the free internet died. And let us let us look at the current issue of The Economist. The headline is, on the cover, The Determinators, Europe Takes on the Tech Giants. Now, it's probably not a coincidence that the fact that the EU is willing to go after the, the tech giants has something to do with the fact that America is home to 15 of the world's 20 most valuable tech companies, while Europe has just one. Article notes that governments in Europe are concerned about technology. The magazine asking, how could they not be? given that big tech firms such as Google and its parent Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook uh, have come to dominate the business landscape. On both sides of the Atlantic, notes The Economist, the reputation that big tech companies other than Apple have been making free with people's data has led to rules being tightened, and there is talk of tightening them more. There are other concerns, too. Europeans have a fairly strong feeling that the firms do not pay enough tax Everywhere there are worries about the content which they spread, such as, for a while, that video of the massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand, and that which they are thought to suppress. Tech groups have hordes of lobbyists experiencing in weathering these various issues. But European regulators are bringing together concerns about privacy and rules about competition to create constraints that, would, that could end the way companies do business online. We shall see. I, I was especially taken by this, uh, this article in The Economist by their diagram they had on page 19, which with startling clarity shows how it is we are the product of these, these companies. The headline is, There's No Such Thing as a Free Ad. And this diagram shows how website advertisement auctions work. This is something we're going to try and talk about more in the future. This might be a good time to lighten the mood by jumping into the good, the bad, and the ugly.
Women of the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for number crunching. After a Google employee calculated the value of pi to a record 31.4 trillion decimal places. Yes, evidently Emma Haruka Iwao spent four months and used 25 cloud virtual computers to achieve this feat. We here at Radio Parallax are unaware of this having any, any practical value. You know, I did ask a, a scientist who works tracking spacecraft for NASA how many decimal places they need to take pi out to to make their calculations work, and he said 16. I was surprised that it was that high. But you got to admit, 16 is a far cry from 31.4 trillion. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for 20-somethings after a British neuroscientist said brain studies show that people don't fully grow up until they're in their 30s. The idea that adulthood begins at 18 or 21, said Peter Jones of Cambridge University, looks increasingly absurd. We do have our doubts here that... (laughs) that, uh, well, we're not sure what percentage of people could be considered grown up by their 30s, but we do know quite a few people who appear to have put it off indefinitely. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for family feuds after lawyer George Conway, husband of White House spokesperson Kellyanne Conway, tweeted that President Trump is clearly, quote, nuts, unquote, and included the diagnosis criteria for, quote, narcissistic personality disorder, unquote. Trump retaliated by calling Conway a total loser and the husband from hell. And finally, we have an item that we're not sure whether it's bad or whether it's ugly, but we're, we're confident it's not good. Evidently, a West Virginia industry group has successfully fought new clean water standards for the state, partly by arguing that because so many state residents are obese, their bodies can handle more pollution from coal and chemical plants. The new EPA-backed regulations don't account for several factors, including body weights, said the West Virginia Manufacturers Association. But, you know, actually, we're pretty confident that they do. And in other emissions-related news, we have the following. Wood, of late, has been touted as a biofuel and an alternative to petrochemicals. Now, wood is certainly a part of our our lives, uh, and as a renewable resource, is attractive in some ways. But there is a disturbing report about a lawsuit being filed against the European Union that emerged earlier this month. The lawsuit alleges that burning wood for energy, a practice known as biomass, undermines efforts to slow climate change and is no better for the climate than burning fossil fuels. The suit filed in the European General Court in Luxembourg asked the court to prevent EU countries from counting forest wood as a renewable energy source under the 2018 Revised Renewable Energy Directive. The plaintiffs, individuals and non-government organizations from Estonia, France, Ireland, Romania, Slovakia, and the U.S. allege the practice is harming their health and livelihoods. They point to research that shows that wood-burning power plants are worse for the climate than coal-fired plants and result in an increase in greenhouse gas emissions and degradation of forest carbon sinks, which absorb carbon from the atmosphere. Now, I was not aware, and I imagine you were also not aware, dear listener, that carbon emissions from wood-fired power plants are not counted under the Renewable Energy Directive 2 
making it appear as if they have zero emissions. And because wood is considered a renewable energy source, companies that convert their facilities from fossil fuel burning to wood burning receive renewable energy subsidies that helps them avoid taxes on carbon pollution. The plaintiffs say energy derived from wood burning also undermines the goals of the Paris Agreement. That agreement urges countries to protect carbon sinks, including forests, and to take actions to implement and support activities relating to reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. If the court agrees to hear the potentially precedent-setting case, it will be the first time a non-government organization has been granted standing to challenge an EU law or regulation. An investigation by the nonprofit Climate Central back in 2015 found that forests in the southeastern United States, including North Carolina, are a main source of wood burned in Europe, spreading the climate impacts across the Atlantic. Across the southeastern U.S., thousands of acres of live oaks, flowering dogwoods, red maples, water tupelos, Atlantic white cedars, and cypress work to absorb carbon when forests are left intact. Those trees are now being cut at an alarming rate by companies like Enviva, which manufactures wood pellets made of about 90% hardwood. University of Maryland geography professor Matthew Hansen told Climate Central the southeast U.S. is a tree farm. Hansen's research found that from 2000 to 2012, nearly a third of southern forests were cut down or, or regrown, and logging was four times more disruptive in the forests of the U.S. southeast than in South American rainforests. It stands out globally. This is super intensive use. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper has urged the Congressional Subcommittee to work both nationally and internationally to combat climate change. Cooper said regarding the manufacture of wood pellets, he's considering policy changes to, quote, make sure our forests are protected, unquote. In case you're keeping score, the U.S. is the world's largest exporter of wood pellets. Between 2013 and 2017, exports increased by 79%. And in 2017, more than 99% of the wood pellets exported from the U.S. went to the EU. Well, needless to say, I think this should be given a, uh, a hard look. We're intrigued by an article that appeared in the East Bay Times about how carbon-rich soil may be the ticket to sustainability. The article showed how fourth-generation rancher Lauren Poncia was digging up a chicory plant in Tomales, and the ranch he's working on in conjunction with the Marin Carpet Project, recently began a sustainable agricultural system of keeping carbon in the soil. The article notes that many conventional farms till the soil and strip the land of all vegetation, reducing the amount of carbon in the soil. The article notes, furthermore, an estimated one-third of global greenhouse gas emissions come from agricultural activities. The Marin Carbon Project has been advocating for carbon sequestration in agricultural soils since 2008. The team started with the question, can we increase the capture of carbon in the agricultural lands here in Marin County? The team decided to analyze soil carbon levels and plant productivity across 22 farms, some of which had carbon-rich compost with manure added to the soil. They note, quote, we found a clear correlation between the addition of manure to the soil systems and an increase in carbon numbers. Well, that would be sweet if we could make a difference by, you know, taking manure and putting it in our soils to make the soil better and sequester the carbon. We're pretty sure that some people listening to this, uh, this program know a great deal about the subject, and we would very much appreciate some feedback sent to us at info at radioparallax.com. 
We would be happy to read any such information into future programs. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Plenty more in the second segment. 